going deep. I feel like Kalo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a three-peat. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones or a long drive. Up close and personal, just like you courtside. They ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. That's right, it is the Going Deep podcast. I am Donovan Bennett, and once again, we are going to be talking about the beautiful game that is football, or as we call it in this country, soccer. And the women are on front stage as it's the Women's World Cup. Canada in the tournament with a real shot to win it, but how to start that's going to make that more difficult. For the first time ever, the tournament's being hosted by two countries. Australia and New Zealand. Part of that is because it is the largest World Cup ever on the women's side as the tournament expands from 24 to 32 teams and lots of depth. Most of the times it's the United States, Japan, one or two European nations who are favorites to win it. Now it's wide open. There are multiple teams from every group that could lift the trophy, including the defending Olympic champions in Canada who have shown that they can be the best in the world in a tournament setting, but also quite as kept have not been very good since the Olympics five, six and one. It's been the record really struggled to score goals, especially from open play. When you look at their performance in the Olympics, they weren't scoring any goals from set pieces. So we'll see how they're able to improve that after game one. Looks like that trend has continued with a nil-nil draw against the Super Falcons in Nigeria. Getting out of this group and getting out of the group number one is really important because of the path to the knockout round and who you might be able to face or who you might be able to really to miss, quite frankly. And the team that you want to miss is obviously the United States looking to become the first nation to three-peat So we will see how Canada does. But to break down that first match, learnings from it, and how they apply to the second match coming up against Ireland is Haley McGoldrick. She's writing for us at Sportsnet, not just on Team Canada, but on the tournament at large. So I pick her brain on what she saw on the first couple days, in the first 90 minutes for Canada, and what she expects to see moving forward. Let's go deep with Haley. So Haley, an eventful start to the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. Not the result, certainly, that Canadians wanted. I have my own takeaways, but quite frankly, nobody cares about them. We want to hear yours. So so, uh, before you help me work through my half-baked ideas, your immediate feelings after watching 90 Minutes Plus was what I, I think the biggest thing is that Jesse Fleming's absence was absolutely felt. There wasn't a lot generated offensively. That missed penalty from Christine Sinclair that really killed a lot of momentum. It seemed like Canada had a little bit early. That happened. Nigeria takes over for a lot of the match. It gets really aggressive. Canada fouled them 16 times. They were just doing anything they could to get them down. In the last 20-ish minutes, Canada gets a bit of momentum back. Evelyn Viennes comes on. She has a nice shot, but there just really wasn't anything. You have players like Adriana Leon, Jordan Heidema up there, and you just don't feel like anything's happening. Christine Sinclair is up there. There's just no shots on goal. There was only two shots from open play. They just didn't do as much as they should have, especially when they did have 46% possession of the ball and took 15 shots, only three were on target, and that's just not good enough to be able to win a match. It wasn't good enough. So many places to go. Let's start with Fleming and the injury. You can make an argument that she is, if not the best player on the national team, but she might be the most important. I worry that the injury might be worse or more serious than the national team's letting on only because she wasn't even really an option. She was on the touchline 
wearing cross trainers, not boots. And so for me, it worries me that if you're not even an option to give something, you know, for a limited time in game one, in less than a week, are you going to be able to play 90 minutes, 60 minutes in, in game two? Your level of concern with Fleming's absence is what? I'm very concerned about it as well. Like you said, she wasn't even an option for that game. And I think a few people thought, well, it's the safest game out of this group, so she'll just stay on the bench. But Nigeria is such an incredible team. They're so talented. They can score. They're insanely fast. They're strong. They're going to run through Canadian defenders and not care. I don't think that this was an easy game that anybody should have taken lightly from the start. So for her to not even be an option was a huge concern. She has 19 goals and six assists and 115 caps for Canada. But not only that, that doesn't sound like a big number. She's also not going to score every single game, but she's such a key figure in that midfield. They looked so out of sync without her. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't really have an attack. They didn't have a rhythm. And not only that, Jesse Fleming has scored in so many big moments for Canada as well. She scored against the United States in Tokyo. She scored against Sweden. She, she's been there as a player who looks like she's going to be Canada's next captain potentially with Christine Sinclair gone. And it just looked like Canada didn't know what to do without her. They had 68% in the first half and didn't have a single shot on target. And you could just tell that not only her attacking threat and how incredible she is with the ball at her feet, but also just her leadership was completely missed. And you can't be having that against teams like Ireland who are going to be just as aggressive and tough and not really let you have those opportunities. And especially going into their final group game against Australia as well, that's the host nation. That's going to be an atmosphere that has 70,000 plus people probably cheering against them. They can't just be complacent having three shots on target like that. So Fleming's absence absolutely was missed in that game. And it's concerning if she's not even an option for that game because they need to have her on the field against Ireland and Australia. And the real thing for me is there's no like for like replacement. There's no one with the attributes, certainly with the technical quality that is coming off that bench that you can plug and play and continue. I suppose you could say that for the two big names that are missing uh, due to injury, uh, Janine Becky and, um, it, you know, it, it would be a similar case uh, as well. And obviously, you know, without a true holding player like the Destroyer, you, 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 you from a shape perspective, have to set up differently. There's also yeah. no like for like replacement in terms of uh, who steps up. Uh, at the spot when uh, there is a PK, the, the, the way that essentially Canada had to manufacture goals uh, at, in Tokyo for the Olympics because they weren't really scoring from open play. Christine Sinclair, was she the right person to take the ball and take that PK? It's it's hard to say yes or no because I think it's easy to look back and obviously say Sinclair should have never taken that penalty. And when she took the actual shot, there wasn't enough power behind it. It was really obvious where it was going. Like Shumiak and Nadozi, she didn't even really have to work for it. Obviously she had to dive to stop it, but like she knew exactly where it was going. It was kind of she brushed it off her shoulder after she saved it. I think there might have been another player who could have potentially taken that shot, had a little bit more power. And I know that it would have been a special moment. Yes, Christine Sinclair could have been the first player, male or female, to score in six different World Cups. Yes, she is this team's lifeline. She's been in so many big moments. But just because you are that player doesn't mean you have to take every single penalty. You look at some of the other players, like, I mean, obviously, Jesse Fleming wasn't an option, but younger players like that, they have the potential. Yes, maybe they've never been to a World Cup before, but that doesn't mean that they don't have what it takes to score in those big moments. You look at Evelyn Dienz when she came on the field, what she generated. She generated their really only half-decent shot when it came to the second half. So I think that looking back, I definitely somebody else should have taken it because not only just, yeah, it was saved, the shot itself didn't seem to be that great of a shot. There wasn't enough power behind it. But obviously when your captain is there and you're in a big moment and you're not even halfway through your first game of the World Cup, you're going to go to her and expect her to perform. But it just really killed the momentum after that point. And you could see it from that team. They couldn't generate anything until the last 20 minutes. See, you're right. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but I didn't feel great 
when she took the ball. And sometimes I wonder, you know, as a manager, are you making the decision for the moment? Are you making the decision that actually makes sense? Julia Grosso has slotted home the most important kick from the spot in the history of the program men's or women's uh, so yes it's a big moment but you can't tell me it was a bigger moment than you know when she scored in the olympics and i felt the same way when the men were at the world cup and everyone's worried about who's going to score that first goal for canada and what's it going to mean i felt like well yeah it's a nice story if alfonso davies scores it but jonathan david or kyle Lahren do this professionally in their sleep they should be the ones at the spot. And in the same way, I feel like Christine Sinclair in a big moment has you know, given the ball to Dean Becky and said, I'm not up for it. Grosso has been able to do it and, and you know, has had somewhat good form for Juventus. I felt like it should be her. But again, uh, am I reading too much into it because of the results? No, I absolutely agree. And that's the first thing that came to mind for me as well. You think of that moment when Alfonso Davies did it. And it's like, yeah, it would have been great. His story of coming to Canada, playing here, wearing the badge would have been great. But it didn't happen. Christine Sinclair would have been so cool that she would have been the first player to score in six World Cups. But it didn't happen. And that's not the right person for the job always. Just because you're the captain of this team, just because you've been in big moments before doesn't mean you are the best person for the job. And like you said, Julia Grasso, she's been in this moment before, and she's converted. She's helped win gold in Tokyo. Give somebody else a chance like that. And I get that you want to just go with somebody you think is the safe option. But also, at this point, it's nil-nil. You truly have nothing to lose. Why not give it to somebody who might have a better chance than Christine Sinclair, who in big moments like this before, when it comes to penalties, obviously penalties are a lot of weight on your shoulders. You get nervous. It really messes with you psychologically, but I do believe it should have been somebody else. Even if Julia Grosso misses it, okay, what changes? Because Christine Sinclair didn't make it either, right? It just gives somebody else that chance, and I think moving forward, you will see that if there are other penalties in this tournament, I don't think Christine Sinclair will be taking them again, but just in that moment, I don't know if Bev Friesen made the right decision. I don't think the safe choice is always the right choice. You talked about how physical the Super Falcons are. Well, uh, guess what? Ireland, just as physical, if not more. Maybe uh, don't have the technical quality that a country like Canada has, but, you know, granted, Australia was without their best player. Gave Australia everything that they could handle in uh, match number one in the group. So let's look forward to Ireland. How are you setting this team up? Understanding uh, that, you know, it's a sport about combinations and partnerships, but also understanding that something that's really lacking, even in the Olympics, to be fair, is key passes, that final ball in the final third. And, you know, for me, they never really looked like they were going to score. Some of their chances were half chances other than the one that Sinclair, you know, blasted a bit wide when she had some space in the first half. Assuming there's no Fleming to start in the second match, how are you setting uh, your 11 up? I think the biggest thing is that they really need to work on their attack. They were pressing so high, and Nigeria was just sitting back and letting it happen and absorbing it because they knew that Canada wasn't an attacking threat at this point. They weren't creating anything from open play. They were trying down the left flank at one point. It looked like it was kind of going okay with Leon down there, but nothing really ever came of it. I think the defense played really well. I will give Canada's defense all the credit. Ashley Lawrence played incredible. Kadisha Buchanan played incredible. Kaylin Sheridan in the net obviously played amazing. There were a few times she was off her line. There was that one big chance where Ashley Lawrence truly sacrificed her body to be able to stop a goal. I think the defense played really well. You really need to work on that attacking threat. So you need to have somebody. I think Evelyn Vienne deserves to start. Against Ireland, she came off the bench and she really gave the team life, but I think she deserves to start there. I'm not sure that having Wiedema on that left side, moving her over when Vian came on, was the right decision. I think Canada lacks a bit of winger depth, and that's something that really needs to be addressed coming into this Irish team. And like you said, this Irish team 
is going to be aggressive. They play five women at the back line. So you really need to be able to attack against a team that's tough and has so much relying on their defense. Their captain, Katie McCabe, she plays for Arsenal. She's somebody who, if you look at her highlight reel, it's basically her running through people a lot of the time. She is not afraid to take anybody on. She will let you come and try to run through her. You won't be able to. And so it is going to be another really physical game. And with them putting a lot of pressure on their defense, Canada is really going to need to step up and figure out how they're going to attack. And I think that Fleming does need to be in that midfield as well. Obviously, you don't want to push her through injury if she's not okay. She's not okay to play. But as we said before, that midfield just looked so out of sync and there was zero attacking threat and zero rhythm without her. And that's really what they need to work on because I don't think the defense played sloppy or allowed chances or anything like that. They were playing aggressive. They were playing aggressive against a team that was playing physical and they did what they needed to do. But there was just nothing from the attack, and that's what needs to be worked on if Canada wants to have a chance against this Irish defense. Yeah, and he, this is why tournament football is so interesting and why the World Cup, quite frankly, is appreciably more difficult to win than the Olympics is, is because Ireland's going to go into that game saying, if we get out of here with a point, nil-nil draw, we're in a good spot. We're minus one in the goal differential going into the last group game against Nigeria with all to play for. We'll take that. We know Sam Kerr is not going to be playing in game two for Australia. And so potentially the, her first appearance could be in the, that final game three against Canada. So it, it it's not the end of the world leaving game one with a draw, but the way the group sets up, it makes things really, really difficult for the Canadians moving forward. You're not just concentrating on Canada. You are looking at the entire group and, and really in the entire field. It's still early in the tournament, obviously, but uh, what are the biggest takeaways from what you've seen this far? Well, as you just said, too, this is a tough group to play in. I think that there's, some groups have been, I don't want to say an easier draw because all of these teams are so talented. But you look at some groups. You look at a group like Spain in Group C. They have Japan, who's going to be really hard to play against. And then they have Zambia and Costa Rica, who it seems like Spain's easily going to get out of that group. You look at the United States even. Yes, they have to play the Netherlands, who is who they faced in the 2019 World Cup final. They know they can beat them. They beat them 2-0. And then they have Vietnam and Portugal in that group who are pretty inexperienced when it comes to the World Cup. Vietnam qualified for their first ever World Cup in 2022. So I think that Canada has a tough draw. But as you said as well, they have to play Australia last, which is huge because, A, Sam Kerr might be back, which Sam Kerr isn't just one of Australia's best players. She's one of the best players in women's football. She's incredible for a reason. Chelsea are three-time defending Super League champions for a reason, and Sam Kerr is part of that. And they can't be complacent going into that game. And as you said, Nigeria is fine taking a draw there because, yes, they have games against Ireland and Australia coming up, but they've already played a tough opponent and they're kind of sitting there, like you said, even Ireland. They see that draw and they go, okay, we have a little bit more to play for. We've already played Australia, who's going to be one of our toughest opponents. We know that Canada doesn't have a bunch of attack right now. We've got a really strong defense. We'll take a draw there. And then, as you said, they would have everything to play for against Nigeria. And I think that we'll see a lot. Obviously, there's more than two days of action, but we'll see a lot from some of these super teams like a Germany coming out of Group H, like a Sweden coming out of Group G, who look like they might be running their group. So even if Canada does miraculously seem to come out of this group, which Group B is one of the tougher groups, absolutely. But even if they do come out of this, it's not going to be easy for them in the quarterfinals. And they had their best finish in 2003. It's been 20 years since Canada's been able to have a half-decent finish at the World Cup. They've definitely not exceeded expectations, and they know that this this team is competitive. They want to do well. That's not just me saying that and criticizing them. Any player I've ever talked to wants to be on that World Cup podium. That is what success looks like for them. So they really have a tough draw having to play Ireland and Australia because I don't want to say Nigeria would have been the easiest game to play. They're an incredible group, and I think too many people took them lightly coming into this game as if they don't have immense goal-scoring talent. They're not incredibly physical defensively, but also clean. I think that's the biggest thing, too. They weren't fouling there as much, and I think Canada does have to be a little bit worried 
coming into their next two games because they're playing two incredibly tough nations and one that they're going to have to play in front of their home crowd. Who do you have tipped to win it? The one thing that's great about this tournament is it is wide open. A lot of the teams who, you know, are favored in terms of the odds have real question marks going in. Certainly some questions because of health issues with the Lionesses who are the Euro defending champions and the defending World Cup champions in the United States to federations with great depth, obviously, uh, but still some star power that won't be attending. Germany is a team that you know many people who cover the game really like in this uh, tournament. Obviously, Australia is on home soil. Who do you like winning it? I do like the United States. I don't want to say that because it just sounds cliche and the easy option and to say, you know, they're they're potentially going to three-peat, which no team's ever three-peated, so that would be incredible for them. But their depth is just so immense, it's crazy. Yes, you have players like Alex Morgan who have been here before, who are World Cup champions, who are returning. And then who else do you have in the front? You have Trinity Rodman and Sophia Smith. Sophia Smith is the youngest player to ever win NWSL MVP. She is incredible. Trinity Rodman became the youngest player to bag a brace for the United States in one of their friendlies. They are just so deep. It's crazy. But as you said, Germany, I think a little bit of eyes need to be on Germany as well because you've got Alex Pop and Lena Oberdorf who play for Wolfsburg together. They were in the Champions League final. They didn't win it, but they're both incredible I think that Germany is also a team that they've won the World Cup twice. They lost Sweden in the quarterfinals in 2019, so they're really looking to pick it up and do well this competition. Even a team like Brazil, you have players like Marta, one of the best players in the world. They've got a lot of younger players. They've got players like Dabinha, who are very talented. And now Brazil is in a little bit of a tougher group. They have to play France, Jamaica, and Panama, their group. But there are a lot of teams that I think – could give the United States a run. Like you said, even England, I think they're still a pretty deep team, even though they do have so many tough losses. They're without Beth England. They're without Beth Mead. They're without Leo Williamson. But they're still an incredibly strong and deep team. They have players like Alessia Russo, Chloe Kelly, Georgia Stanway on their roster. They've got a really strong defense. They've got Mary Earps back there in net. So I think that England can make a run for it too, especially having that momentum of the Euro on their side and also wanting to win it for those teammates who weren't able to make the trip. Obviously, having the loss of Lee Williams and their captain and one of the best defenders in the game is huge, but I think they have enough to be able to do it. So like you said, I think it is a little bit more wide open than it seems, but the United States rightfully so have a lot of the odds on their side because they are just so deep. It doesn't really matter who they put at the front. It seems like whoever they do will be able to score a goal, and I think you'll see that in their opening match that they're going to really want to set the tone for the tournament to say we are the two-time defending champions and we're looking for a third. I need you to give some perspective on another highly discussed and talked about and now trending controversy coming out of the Women's World Cup. And that is the fact that the Canadian women's national team does not have an official nickname. There are so many good ones in this tournament. The Matildas from Australia, the reggae girls from Jamaica, the girls in green from Ireland, stars and stripes from the United States, Filipinas from obviously the Philippines, the football ferns is outstanding one. Yet we have nothing TBD essentially. Do we, do we need a nickname? How did we get to this point where we don't have one? What should it be? These are the things that keep me up at night, Haley. I know. I thought we had one, too. And then I saw some people say Les Rouges, but then it's like, well, France is called Les Bleus, so I'm not sure if we just look like we're copying France, if we're going to just say we're the Reds instead of the Blues. But I, I think that needs to be changed. Being the only country with no nickname, we, we can't be that. That's it just makes us look like we're not fun. We're a fun country. This is a fun team to watch. Even in yesterday's game, yeah, there was no goal score, but you could tell that they're very passionate, hardworking players. They deserve a nickname, and especially when there are cool ones. Like you said, Reggae Girls is a sick one. I love that. Even the Lionesses. There's the three lines for the men. They're the Lionesses, Euro champions. So we definitely need to fix that. I, I don't mind Les Rouges, but I think we can do better than that because it seems like it's just like, well, you know, it's French and part of Canada's identity is having a province that speaks French. So we could do a little bit better, I think, than Les Rouge, but I will accept it for now if that's what we have on the forefront because just having no official nickname is not okay. The Federation probably couldn't afford the 
copyright <laughs> of having a nickname at this point. Do the men have a nickname? Like, I'm trying to think. Do we, no, do we have think- a we just I think like, that's what people call Le Rouge, maybe. Like, I think that's kind of where people got it from for the women, because I think some people call the men that, but I don't think they really have an official nickname either. Yeah, the nickname will be the people who generated the money for the CPL. That would be the nickname. Uh, <laughs> it's a little long, but um, it, it, before I let you go on, on, on all things soccer, maybe we should end it there, because... Famously, Christine Sinclair said that without a deal, she did not believe she would be able to represent the Federation in the country. And obviously she is. And it sounds like a deal might be close because one, they're on the field. But two, she said she doesn't want to talk about it. We saw at the She Believes Cup that there was a tangible emotional toll to everything that was going on with the Federation and we saw quite frankly that they weren't prepared. This is one of the only uh, teams in the tournament that did not have a send-off game in their home country before leaving and going uh, uh, to the World Cup. Are you optimistic, pessimistic, neutral on how all of this is being resolved? I'm a little bit pessimistic because I know that the biggest thing is that Federations don't want their teams to boycott. No matter what situation they're in, they don't want their teams to boycott the World Cup and not play. And also as players, you work your entire career to be able to play at a big tournament like the World Cup. They really don't want to boycott either. So I think that this temporary deal was enough to say, okay, we can go play in the World Cup, but it's not even enough to really get it off players' minds, I don't think. They're still constantly thinking about that. And when they come back from Australia – that's something they're going to immediately keep fighting for. A temporary deal is not good enough, especially because they're not just fighting for themselves. And I think that's the biggest thing people don't take away from it is they think that these players are just fighting for themselves and they want money and they're selfish, et cetera, et cetera. They're fighting for future generations. They're fighting so that players in 10, 20 years, little girls who are going to be working through the Canadian system, never have to deal with anything like this, never have to feel like they're not equal to male counterparts, to other countries, Etc. I think that you see what the United States did with their deal, and that really set the tone, and that's helped Canada be able to go to the House of Commons, go sit in front of people and share their story and have their voices heard. But I'm a little pessimistic because of just the way Canada soccer operates and the way that they've just kind of said, okay, here's this temporary deal, just go play in the World Cup and we'll deal with it later. And I think that from Canada soccer's perspective, they're hoping that if Canada does well and they can ride a high, it'll buy them a little bit of time. I'm not sure that's going to happen with from what we saw yesterday. I'm hoping Canada does well, of course, but not very optimistic if they don't really have an attacking threat. But I think that I'm a little pessimistic because of how Canada soccer is, but I know that these women are fighting for something bigger than themselves. And so as soon as this tournament's over, they're going to be back fighting for that once again because it's not just about them. It's about the future of women playing soccer in this country. I want to talk to you about uh, another person of interest for Canadian sports fans and someone you know of quite well and who you've covered, and that is uh, James Wade, former head coach of the Chicago Sky, leaves and joins the Toronto Raptors as an assistant. And I guess I'm a bit torn. Love him and his personality. He was one of the stars of the WNBA game in Toronto. Uh, but you got someone who's a head coach and a GM in the women's game, leaving that for a spot on the bench of a rookie head coach, leaving midseason. It's great that we are diversifying where we look for talent in men's pro sports. But I also worry if there's an erosion of the viability of women's sports if a head coach for you know what should be a competitive team just pieces out in the middle of the season. What should we know about James Wade, and you know, how do you feel about the transition of coaches from you know the W to other opportunities in mainstream men's basketball? Yeah, I think James Wade is an incredible coach. As you said, he was coach and GM that team in 2021 that won the championship with Candace Parker, Kalia Copper, 
Ali Quigley, Courtney Vandersloot, Diamond DeShields, Steph Dolson, incredible team that he pieced together. He coached them there. They played a tough Phoenix Mercury team, won it on home soil. I think that he's incredible. I do think the Chicago Sky have been in a weird transitionary period, especially this season, because they have lost a lot of players. Candace Parker's gone. Courtney Vanderson's gone. Diamond DeShields left last season, but a lot of that roster that was part of that 2021 championship team, Kalia Copper's pretty much one of the only women standing still. And I think that he might have gotten the opportunity. The team wasn't doing great. He thought it's a transition. I think it also aligns with potentially his personal goals because you see other coaches like Becky Hammond, who she comes in in her first year, wins a championship with the Aces. There's kind of rumors about, is she going to be able to take this job when the Raptors were looking for a head coach? Her name was kind of in that hat, and she was just all in on the Aces. She said, I don't really care about talking about the Raptors, the NBA. I'm all in on this team. And so I don't think it's that coaches in the WNBA are constantly looking for an NBA head coaching job or an assistant coaching job. I think maybe that's what James Wade wanted in his personal goals, and he's earned it. He's an incredible person. He has such good rapport with his players, and you can see how much they trust him and love him, and I think that's one of the keys as well. Yes, he's an amazing coach, and he was a great general manager and put teams together and put what he needed on the floor, but also he is authentic. He's transparent. These players have a really great relationship with him. But I don't think every single head coach in the WNBA would leave for an NBA job. That's not just their goal in life. But also, I do like that that's where the NBA kind of is looking a little bit because there is so much talent in the WNBA on sidelines that deserves a chance if that's what they want. So the Raptors got a really good one in James Wade because he's a lot of fun, but he's also very, very good at his job and he knows what he's doing and he knows what needs to be on the floor at all times, but has a good report. And I think that trust with players and coaches is such a big thing because you want to play well for a coach that you really like. That is true. Everything you said is also true of Bev (laughs) Priestman. I hope that she can pull the strings and get this team a result. Number one, that would be nice, but more so firing on all cylinders, playing some attractive football and finishing on uh, some of those chances. How about we put a set piece away? That would be nice. Uh, This chat was nice. Uh, Thank you uh, so much. And uh, enjoy the coverage, uh, even though it means that you're going to have lots of sleep in your eyes. Thank you so much, Donovan. It's always a pleasure to chat. And my sleep schedule will return eventually, but I love women's soccer, so it's absolutely worth it. Once again, that was Haley McGoldrick at Goldie on Sports is her handle on Twitter. She's tweeting up a storm about the women's game and this tournament. And as I mentioned off the top, writing for sportsnet.ca, not just her. We've got a bunch of people chipping in, including John Monaro, who's always writing great content around the beautiful game. Sportsnet.ca for all of your coverage on the women's world cup, this podcast for all of your coverage on the women's world cup, because we're endeavoring to, do what we're doing now, recapping after Canada's games, essentially resetting where the program is, where they're moving forward, and what the tournament has been like thus far. And there's no better person to do that with than Lindsay Gibbs, who's covering the sport and women's sport at large at, quite frankly, a higher level than anyone. Coming up next, I'm going deep, Lindsay Gibbs. My name is Lucille Bryan. I'm Clifton Bryan. My grandson is a show. And I'm so happy that you are listening to Gondi with Donovan Bennett. I'm so glad that you had the show. Thank you. Thank you, Grandma. Granddad, this is the Going Deep podcast. And as I mentioned before the break, we're going to catch up with Lindsay Gibbs to break down the tournament and really how far the tournament has come, but yet how far it still has to go. We're seeing record numbers in terms of viewership, record numbers in terms of butts in seats. Both host countries, New Zealand and Australia, set a record in their opening matches in terms of live attendance. But will that translate to something closer to equality? We'll ask Lindsay, who is writing about these things and thinking about them all the time. She's a writer of power plays. You can find that online she luckily lent her voice and her time for us let's go deep with Lindsay Gibbs 
So, Lindsay, it has been an eventful start to the Women's World Cup. Some great performances, some great crowds. For Canadians, maybe not a great result. Uh, why don't we start there? Uh, your takeaways from the nil-nil result between Canada and the Super Falcons. Yeah, I mean, Nigeria's good. <laughs> Nigeria's legit is my main takeaway. I think Canada definitely missed some opportunities. You know, the penalty kick, um, missing those will definitely come back uh, to haunt you. I'm sure that Christine Sinclair, um, legend that she is, did not sleep well um, after missing that penalty kick. Um, but, you know, they had opportunities other than that. But I think that really my main takeaway was um, just, being impressed with the Super Falcons, less being disappointed with the um, with Team Canada. But I know that's probably not great comfort because they're, that's such a tough group that Canada's in. So, I mean, I wasn't going to bring it up, but um, we're here now. You said it, <laughs> uh, being uh, impressed with the um, – and then you couldn't say anything because our team doesn't have a nickname. Lindsay, do we need a nickname? Like Super Falcons is amazing. You know, I love uh, reggae girls. The American Stars and Stripes is, you know, apropos. Uh, does our national team need a nickname? Uh, yes, uh, I think so. I think it would probably help. I think it's very, I'm sure you saw the uh, meme going around the internet where every other team has a nickname except for Canada. And so next to Canada, it now says no official nickname. And it looks like Canada soccer is really embracing that. They put that on their Twitter bio, no official nickname. Um, but, you know, I mean, I just think you should be the Christine Sinclair's. Ooh. You know, I think everything should just be about Christine Sinclair. Um, and, and I think that would help. I think that would help because you're right. The Super Falcons, great nickname. Okay. So like the Sinkies or something like that. I, I said like the high taxpayers, but that not exactly, um, you know, that doesn't inspire a great football. Uh, no, what about you, the, the universal health care? Okay, you know? I, I like that. I like that. Yeah. The health cards. I love that. Okay. Um, well, you know what, uh, some other countries in this tournament also have universal health care. The hosts um, uh, being That's them. True. Let's let's talk. You're about, rubbing it in now to this uh, American. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you're going for your third World Cup, so we have to level up on something. I, the, the, let's talk about the hosts and and start with like the hosts that like some people when they tuned in realized, oh, New Zealand's hosting too. Oh, cool. Uh, New Zealand, like great performance, great crowd, tears. From from uh, players who've who've gone on to 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 win big things, uh, you know, in the in the pro game, what do you make from the scenes that we saw uh, coming out of New Zealand? I mean, absolute chills. I mean, think about what New Zealand went through that day. They had yeah. an active shooter, which just does not happen in New Zealand. You know, right near the stadium, um, the very day of the opening. Match. I mean, the 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 emotions that that country went through on that day, and then to win their first ever World Cup match while they're hosting, um, when nobody was expecting them to, um, you know, to, to get a win or to really do anything, it, it was just it was incredible scenes. And you know, Allie Riley, one of the New Zealand players, is very beloved over here in the United States. She plays in the NWSL and. Um, to see her reaction to that victory. And like you said, I mean, there were over 40,000 people in the stadium, which is a, by far a record for um, a New Zealand uh, game. And, I mean, just what a moment. It's one of those moments that just reminds you, like, oh, right, this is why we do the World Cup. Like, this is, this is what it's all about. Australia as well set a record in terms of their attendance in their first game. You talk about the fact that, you know, you came away with, feeling that the Super Falcons are for real. I came away feeling that about Ireland, even in a losing performance. Mind you, no Sam Kerr, and I just feel like in a way this tournament might be cursed. Why can't we have nice things? So many great footballers are not healthy. Uh, but, but what do you make of uh, the matchup the other host nation had to start the tournament? Brutal. <laughs> that was such a physical game. It was so good. Um, it was, I mean, just talk about World Cup intensity. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think Australia, without Sam Kerr, being able to get the win in any way possible is definitely something they have to feel good about. I don't think a lot of people left that game feeling maybe as confident about Australia as they did beforehand. 
but I think a win is a win <laughs> for sure. But yeah, I mean, Ireland for this to be their first world cup, like they are also not going to be an easy out for anyone. I mean, this is a really tough team. I mean, this is the group of death, you know, for a reason. So uh, it's going to be very interesting to see, but yeah, like you mentioned the crowd, 70,000 um, plus on hand to watch that game. And uh, it's, there's just so much depth in the field right now. And I think that's just so exciting for all of us. It's, it's almost unfortunate for, for all, all of us over here in this hemisphere, because it's like, when can we sleep? There's no games you want to miss. Like there's no games that you're like, Oh, that's, we can't, we, you know, we can comfortably sleep through that one. Well, you talk about, you know, group B being the group of death. That's not, necessarily part of the lexicon in the women's game the way it has been in the men's game only because there's been you know a couple superpowers who have invested and who have essentially dominated the sport when the tournament originally was to expand some people were really concerned that we were just going to see even more massive score lines and still early we will see some but yeah. the fact that there is so much depth in the game right now, what do you attribute that to? I mean, growth, more investment, just more years, right? Like, I think people are starting to see the benefit of um, investing. And I think, you know, part of the expansion is there, you're more likely to make the World Cup, right? So it's more likely that your investment is going to pay off in a World Cup appearance. I think that's something that gets left out of the conversation, right? When there's only, you know, two teams per, you know, conference that's, uh, you know, can confederation can, that can get in, it, a lot, it leaves a lot of people out. It leaves a lot of people wondering, like, we're not, what's the point investing when, you know, there's such a big hill to climb. But I think that expanding the field actually encourages more companies to invest. And I think that's a really good thing. Um, and additionally, you know, I mean, I think we're just seeing more professional opportunities for women um, in football, which then they're bringing that back to their hosts, um, their to their countries. And, you know, we're seeing a lot more players go through college soccer in the United States is just growing, growing, growing. And we're seeing a lot of players get filtered through there and leave very great players ready to contribute on a professional or a national level. So, you know, there's just so many more avenues for development right now. And I think that's, um, you're just seeing that pay off, um, you know, bit by bit, like you said, there will be some blowouts. Don't get me wrong. Like that's, (laughs) um, you know, that's, that's going to happen, but so what? Like that's, that's part of the, the growth of the game too, but you're right. Like we have groups of death here. We have, um, teams from that have never been here before that are not going to shy away that don't look overwhelmed by the moment because they have players like in in Ireland they have a lot of players on that team that play professionally you know that are used to big stages and big moments part of the resources that are growing are the finances and in that investment and the prize pool of money has increased and like all things on Twitter, when that was announced, it was incredibly divisive, depending on uh, who you follow. Either it was a great step because it was a considerable amount of an increase compared to what it was, or it was a great injustice because it was not close to what uh, the men take home. I, that's just my fault for looking at anything on Twitter, I suppose. Maybe the discourse was more nuanced <laughs> if I was you on threads. Uh, but But how should we... You know, someone who is focused on the sexism that we see in sports all the time. How should we conceptualize where the prize money is right now in FIFA? And uh, part and parcel of that, the way the money is distributed from uh, FIFA to the individual uh, national sports organizations in in each country and then to the players. Yeah, I mean, I think... Yes, it did increase, and it more than doubled. You know, I think they had been on a trajectory where between 2015 and 2019, they made a big deal about the pot doubling, but it doubled from $15 million to $30 million or something like that, you know? But it was just like, meanwhile, the men's, you know, went up more, way more. Um, so the, the, after that, we saw the prize, the money gap even get wider between the men and the women. So it's good that it's up to about 100 and. 
10 million, I believe it's going to the players. Um, but, and that's, yeah, I'm not going to say like that's a bad thing, but I do think it's still a quarter of what the men received last year in their World Cup, and that's a huge, huge difference, just 25%. And I think that that's that's the context you need. It's 25%, and FIFA is a organization with four billion dollars um, in coffers. They could easily make up that difference and hardly blink. Um, you know, they are going to break even on this tournament, which is a big deal, right? So everyone says, oh, people just lose money on women's sports. They're going to break even, um, which considering the lack of investment for them throughout the history and the game, I think that should just encourage them to want to invest more, to want to give more prize money. They are the solution. They keep looking for a solution to equal prize money. They are the solution. And the money that they give to these players and these teams, that's the quickest way to grow the game. Because like I said, these these federations are going to see it immediately paying off to invest in women's sports if they are literally getting payouts from FIFA and literally getting seeing ways that they can earn that money. So I think that FIFA often just looks around going, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. But really, they are the direct answer to um, growth of the women's game. And certainly, they, you know, there's been progress made. But it's almost been in spite of FIFA, not because of it. And FIFA could come in and really do something big. So I, I'm really hoping that that they see that. Um, I think the concern right now is that, you know, they made a big deal about how a lot of these payments were going to be direct payments to the players. So, um, you know, they said that there's every player is going to get a direct payment of at least $30,000. Um, which for a lot of these players, they're semi-pro. Like that's more than they earn paying fo- playing football in a year. Um, and but then we find out that actually that money is going to be filtered through the federation. So actually, there's really no checks and balances on that. They're basically suggesting that the federations pay that money directly to the players. But uh, these federations are notoriously corrupt and notoriously. I mean, there's about a dozen teams right now, including Canada, um, including Nigeria, who are directly fighting with their federation right now over money and investment um, very publicly in this World Cup. And so to think that FIFA thinks the answer is to have the money filter through the federation is just absolutely it's, – it's infuriating is what it is. It, you're right. It's – Sadly, not unique to just Canada in terms of the labor dispute that we've had ongoing uh, over the last couple of years, so much so that, you know, uh, the players tried to withhold their services, tried to protest. Could you imagine something like that happening at a World Cup level? And, and even if it did, would it, would it move the needle? I mean, I think labor solidarity does move the needle, right? I think we see it time and time again um, that it's it's the answer. I don't know about, like, direct, you know, it's a lot to ask these players to directly boycott or hold out during the World Cup. Um, you know, it, it's just a reminder this is only every four years for them, too. This is a huge stage. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is a huge stage. But I think that, you know, all these teams being so vocal about it and a lot of coaches are being very vocal about these disputes as well, I think that's a really strong step. They need to use this platform to shine light. I mean, I think what's happening in Canada uh, since they won gold in the Olympics is just absolutely a travesty. I mean, the fact that they didn't have any home games in the lead up to this World Cup is just that would never happen on the men's side, right? If the man, man's team had won gold at the Olympics, had won a tournament that huge, and then was being sent off to this major tournament and to just not have any home, you know, games, and then to claim poverty when, well, guess how you can make money? You can host games and sell tickets, you know? So I just think that there's just so much, like, um, going on and within these these federations that I think the most important thing is that these teams are being vocal about it, are using the platform they have at the World Cup, because a lot of times in past years, it's not that this stuff wasn't happening. It was just happening more behind the scenes because players didn't feel empowered to speak up about it. We were constantly having a conversation about the professionalization of women's sports and them being able to be athletes, but also make an honest and 
equal living while doing it. Where are we in that sense in terms of soccer? I look at some athletes and I wonder, does it make more sense to stay in college and get money via NIL than it does to become a professional and, you know, join the NWSL? Have those gaps being closed a little bit or do you still need to look to go to abroad if you want to cash in financially? Um, definitely it's, it's moving in the right direction than WSL. I don't, don't want to say that a lot more could be done, but I think competition is the best thing, right? Having the competition with these big European leagues right now is a really big step because they're, they have to step up their game if they're going to want to retain the talent. I think one of the most, um, those staggering things is there was a survey and hold on, I'm getting this statistic right now. Um, cause I don't have it right in front of me, but, uh, Thief pro, which is, um, a union for the players did a study and they found out that only, um, I believe it was less than half of the players. Sorry. I'm grabbing the statistic right now. um, yeah, so only 40% of the players that compete in Confederation Championships, which those are the World Cup qualifiers, consider themselves professional athletes. Only 40%. And 29% of those players reported not receiving any payment from their national team, um, which is just kind of unconscionable because a lot of these players had to take breaks from their primary jobs. So I think, you know, you have to look at it beyond the WSL, beyond what's happening in Europe, and just look at it globally. And to have these big – these are the big confederation championships. And to have only 40% of the players that are competing in them even consider themselves pro athletes is – it's a really devastating number, and it shows how far there is still to go. It's a great way to look at it, and numbers truly tell a story. You know, when you look at the – nations that are vying to lift you know a, a trophy internationally essentially canada is the only one that doesn't have uh, a domestic league yeah. there are steps in that direction obviously you know diana matheson has done lots of groundwork to get the, the country there hopefully by 2025 you've covered these leagues both in North America and uh, abroad are, are there one or two things that you would say are foundational that have to be set up for these leagues to be successful if, if Diana and the Project 8 group were reaching out to you for some consultation uh, and don't give too much because we, we, we don't want you to give away your expertise for free but but what would you say would be you know the, the things that really make the difference in terms of these leagues being viable? I mean, I think this is different because this is, um, you know, I know that a lot of leagues didn't start with this, but I think going forward, um, I mean, it goes back to player solidarity. We need CBAs in place. We need um, collective bargaining agreements. The players need to unionize and the players need a seat at the table um, for all these discussions. And I think that unionizing, you know, it's often seen as like anti-management, but I think it really can help management in so many ways because it really helps solidify like, what are the salaries that we can afford? What can we guarantee here? It just brings all these conversations to the forefront at the beginning of the process as, as opposed to just having them be willy-nilly. And I think that's really, really important. So I would say anytime you're looking, you want, you want a players union um, as early in the process as possible. And number two, I think from what we've seen with NWSL and abroad a lot, you have to prioritize player safety player safety, player safety, player safety. Um, And, you know, you want that stuff in place in the beginning so you don't have to go through what the NWSL went through, which is this huge reckoning. And, you know, players who have lost their careers to the mistreatment and abuse within the system. Um, We know better now, so we should do better. And I hope that um, a league in Canada starts with those two things at the forefront because, um, if the players are safe and if the players have some sort of security, I think that the sky is the limit for um, these leagues. And it doesn't have to be, you know, 
I mean, I'd like it to be, of course, every player getting millions of dollars, but that doesn't have to be, that doesn't have to be the step that we go to right away, right? Like, let's just get these, let's just get things professionalized. I think it would do wonders for soccer in Canada um, to have that, that local system because it would just, you know, it just, I mean, the NWSL, since the NWSL has launched, you know, the U.S. women haven't lost a World Cup. <laughs> you know, it just helps to have uh, a local um, team and that, those systems, and it helps grow the game so much. So really rooting for Canada to get it together on that front. As are we. You know, one of the areas that, you know, if players have seated the table – seems to get addressed is the fact that they need appropriate resources in terms of health and support. One area where businesses, which are for-profit, may look to you know find some savings, if you will, because they're more interested in their shareholders than sometimes their athletes. We've seen a rash of injuries in the women's game, specifically ACL injuries. And there's you know a, a bunch of factors we could ascribe that to. The fact that Boots are designed and made for men primarily, that women play on turf more than not, that their, their, their schedule is, is jam-packed um, throughout the calendar and lack of resources in terms of the support staff. Where can we go to address it so that we are in a World Cup and all of the best players are there and, and able you know, to compete? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, I know it's, I mean, it needs money. People who have money need to fund these studies. Like, that's where it starts. Because I think I read a statistic um, that only 6% of sports science is devoted towards women, which is 6%. You know, it just really shows that women are playing and putting their bodies on the line and, you know, in a system that was not designed for them. And like you said, I mean, it's down to the footwear. It's down to the training regimens, and it's down to the very turf they're playing on, the very playing surfaces that they're dealing with. And all of those little um, things just really, really add up. But, I mean, I think that we're starting to see more research in this in this area but it's really part of a systemic thing where just sports science is just not, it does not take women's bodies into account. And I hope that all the attention that's been drawn this year to the, um, you know, to the ACL epidemic, which it really is an epidemic, I hope will bring more money in to study it because that's, that's what's needed is money. You know, for a long time, historically, whether you're talking about, you know, Olympic sports or, you know, team sports like soccer, felt like North America, especially in the United States, we had an advantage just because culturally we allow and encourage women to play sports where there's areas in the world where that's just not the case. Uh, and so I thought by default we should be competing much higher um, in women's sports. But when we talk about some of these issues, it seems like we're behind in North America in terms of respecting female athletes, investing in female athletes, going to watch and being entertained by female athletes. How do you balance the fact that we say that we are progressive in North America, specifically the United States and in Canada, uh, and somewhat liberal on, on issues when it comes to women, and we consider ourselves to be feminist countries, but yet there's areas in, in, in Europe, even areas in Asia that um, are the same, if not you know, sometimes better at us in, in supporting female athletics. Well, I don't want to get into politics right now, but it has not that like we're like super friendly to women. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, you know, I think it can be overstated how friendly to women that we are in comparison. Like you said, I think we like to uh, pretend that we are, um, or there's a segment of us that like to pretend that we are. But the truth is, um, there's a huge segment of the population. I can't speak for Canada, but I know in the United States that um, really. Um, very much so, uh, I would say, traditional values, um, old school um, values, traditional gender roles that they really lift that up. And we also have a media ecosystem. You know, we don't have, um, you know, 
really much publicly funded media here in the United States. It's all like ESPN. It's all the thing that gets the most clicks. And that's the coverage of female athletes, I think, has really um, led us to this point where they're just so disrespected. I mean, they're continuously, all studies continuously say they're getting about 5% of the coverage. Like, how are you supposed to grow when you're just getting 5% of the coverage decade after decade? And so, you know, I think that the truth is, like, we're not better than anyone else on this case. We, you know, Title IX has given us a leg up for sure when it comes to competitiveness. But on a professional level, um, we've got a long, long ways to go. And on a political level and on a personal level, we have a long, long ways to go. So um, I think that it's really important that we don't see ourselves as being ahead of the curve, but we just keep pushing, you know, wherever the curve is, we keep pushing that forward. Um, you know, I think that it's, you know, we're, there, there are improvements being made, but until the media really catches up with it, until individual, you know, like investors really catch up with that, I think we're going to continually, continuously see us lag behind. And other countries that are really using, you know, are, are going to, lap us because they're going to see the commercial benefit that exists that very clearly exists that's been proven that it exists time and time again and yet there's a little bit of i always say there's a little bit of groundhog day with with women's sports right it's um you know you'll have a really great turnout to a game and there will be all these headlines oh my god look people really care about women's sports and then it's like the next day that doesn't carry on to the next day we completely forget and it has to be proven all over again. And so I think until we get out of that mindset, we're going to be lagging behind. It's a good Sorry, right. I don't know if that directly answered your question. <laughs> no, it did. That's a great uh, reality check, uh, quite frankly. Uh, someone who does like to be political is Megan Rapino. And yeah. before you know, I let you go, I, I would love for you to put her career um, in context and maybe tell us what her legacy will be. As we know, this will be her last uh, World Cup and her, her last season in the NWSL. And, and do the same for Christine Sinclair, who, although we don't know for sure that it is her last World Cup, Law of Averages says she's not going to be you know, around at the age of 43 or 44 uh, for the next World Cup, but you never know. Two global football stars that in a way... Um, for me, really represent their country. Rapino's a celebrity superstar. He's always got great goal celebrations and different hair color. And, you know, Christine Sinclair is super understated and doesn't like attention or media, but also really good. And so she's, you know, ultra-Canadian and sheepish in that way. But for you, uh, these two giants in the game, you know, if this is the last time that we see them both competitively at World Cups, what are their legacies for you? Well, I mean, I think greatness, period, greatness and longevity and, you know, transcending their sport for sure. Um, but, you know, I think with Pino, I can obviously speak a little bit more to her legacy within our country. It's that she's almost not only is she given permission for female athletes to and those in women's sports, athletes in women's sports to speak out and use their voices. She's almost made it mandatory. Right. Like she's made it a given that they're going to. And I just, you know, we always kind of think about the talent gap, right? Oh, the U.S. women have so much more talent. It's an automatic that they're going to win these tournaments and these things. But, A, that's not true. There's nothing automatic in sports. Nothing is easy in sports. And, B, when I think back to 2019, I really think they made it look so much easier, more, so much easier than it was to be in, in that public of an equal pay fight with your federation, and then to win the whole thing, like while your federation is suing your team, like while your federation is insulting your team in court, and then to go out and win the whole thing, which was really the only way they could have actually achieved equal pay. I'm deter I I would go to my grave saying that if they don't win that tournament, they don't get equal pay and they don't push the whole sport all these federations forward monumentously. And Rapino had to carry the weight of that while the president of our country is attacking her on social media, while she becomes this lightning rod, like, um, 
you know, resistance figure. And it's just so much bigger. And now you're seeing so many players just so comfortable using their platform, whether it's to talk about mental health, whether it's to, you know, talk more about racism, whether it's to talk about LGBTQ rights, whether it's to fight for trans kids. You're just, it's just an innate part of what the U.S. Women's National Team is, and it's, it's something you see across sports as well. So I think that her legacy is just so much bigger than anything she's done on the field. Um, but to be able to compete on the field the way she did while under that pressure is just, it's, I don't think you can say enough good things about it. <laughs> like it's, it, it, I don't know if anyone else could have done what she did in 2019. Um, it's, it's hard to imagine. And I mean, Christine Sinclair, I think like she's just been, I can't, I, when I just, the, the love that my Canadian friends, you know, uh, Sharina, Shereen Ahmed, you know, the love that they use when they talk about Christine Sinclair is really unlike anything I've ever heard. You know, it's just so clear that while the country wasn't investing in female athletes, while um, there wasn't much to root for on the national stage, there was always Christine Sinclair. And it just seems like she's been, just for you all, that light, that that transcendent star. And it's, it's just that we need those, right? We need those people that we can count on that can take things to the next level. And we've, she's been using her voice a lot more lately as well in the fight against the Federation. I think she sees that as part of her legacy of securing an, a good CBA for the next generation so that they're not having to deal with what she's having to deal with on these biggest stages. And so I think for both of them, I, I can't wait for the day when athletes and women's sports don't have to do both <laughs> when they're actually getting support from their federation and not resistance when they don't have to have these huge battles um, to just get what the men innately get, even if they're way worse, you know, um, success wise, it's going to be so, so freed freeing, but it's, we're really lucky that we do have these athletes that not only they match their greatness on and off the field. And I know that sounds really cheesy, but um, it's, it's true. Well, and I'm so thankful that uh, we have people like you who help them in the fight for equality and in, in, in sport, oftentimes basic uh, human rights, but also shine a spotlight so that we can fully appreciate uh, their great athletic exploits. Thank you so much for joining Lindsay and enjoy the tournament. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, I am. Uh, I'm excited and I'll be rooting for Canada to get get that win. And we definitely want to see Christine Sinclair score in her sixth world cup, which is just amazing. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> Thank you so much to Lindsay who I don't know about you, but left me feeling really uplifted about this tournament in state of the women's game, but also gave us some really sobering facts in terms of how far we need to go for more content from her. Just like that. Make sure you're subscribing to her newsletter. It is a no BS look at sexism in sports it's called power plays. You can find it at power plays underscore news on Twitter, also you can subscribe to the Power Plays podcast. And for content from her on Twitter, at Lynn Sports is the handle L I N Z S P O R T S. Yes, I said Z uh, is her handle on Twitter. And that's it for me. Uh, enjoy the games, enjoy the football. Hopefully, by the next time we break down Women's World Cup action, we'll be talking about a Canada women's national team victory. Until then, talk soon.